Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sorry You're In My Seat, a weekly podcast that unites two best friends on a quest to find the greatest movies of all time. My name's Aaron and each week I have the pleasure of talking movies and films with my best buddy James. Hello there. This week, no exception, hot off the heels of some classic episodes of late, Top Gun, The Bodyguard. This week, a bit of a smorgasbord. Hmm. It's time to go back to our roots. Good films. <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> no, but we've had, we've had fun over the last few weeks doing some kind of one-off um deep dives and uh, play-by-plays of certain movies where we've poked fun at them and, you know, had a laugh and, and rejoiced over how kind of films have changed and particularly movies from the 80s and 90s, how it was just a different time in cinema. Yeah, so so now we you've come up with loads. You've been busy this week, haven't you? I've watched loads of films. So this week is a bit of a smorgasbord. We are going to talk, I suppose our main feature and our main talking point is going to be Guillermo del Toro and his filmography, Asking that question, that if you had to pick one out of such a great career, what would be your favourite so far? Because hopefully the man has got so much more to give, um, you know, over the course of the next few years, decades, however long. Um, and around that, we're going to pad out the episode with some films that are new on Now TV, Netflix and other streaming services. So that's kind of what we're going to do. Yeah, we're going to go for it. We're going to go for it. Yeah. Is this the one? <coughs> no. No. <laughs> Next, and, next week. 199 <laughs> plus a few bonus episodes later and here we are talking about this. Um, yeah, if you your first episode, don't forget to like, subscribe. You'll get a new episode each and every week in your inbox for free completely. This is unscripted. Uh, yep. You know. <laughs> it's <laughs> unedited. <there>. It's here. <laughs> Unimpressive. It's podcasting. That, it's that person at the party that could do anything at any minute but then just leaves them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is pretty much us, yeah. <laughs> Just, but it's just two film fans talking about films for film fans. That's what we get around the max each week. No script, nothing to go off. We just talk and then people download this episode. It's great. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Kind of keeps us going. Yeah. Leave a review, share with a friend, talk about how great we are. Yeah. Listen to it on your commute to work or maybe you're going for a run later. Maybe you're going to the gym or maybe you just want to ignore someone you live with. Yeah. Maybe someone's trying to talk to you and you don't want to talk to them. So just put your headphones in and pretend to listen to something. But instead yeah. of doing that, listen to this. We will tickle that special part of your ear and if you listen to headphones right now we're in there we, we're in you we're, can hear me <laughs> yeah Ooh, next week's gonna be really weird when we talk about inner space <laughs> when we're actually inside people <laughs> oh. inner space digressed um, <laughs> so Guillermo del Toro is the hot topic plus of a film chat James how have you been I've been splendid sir it's been you know it's, it's a time I'm uh, I'm experimenting with other cinemas oh <laughs> So I moved to Sheffield and it's mm. got a wider range. The thing we always say about Lincoln, it's got a monopoly. You, know, you can jack up the prices where you want. I know now it's got another cinema, but still Odin, I think, is the cinema. Mm. Well, in Sheffield, I've got The View. I've got others. <laughs> Cineworld. Thinking about Cineworld, cheating. yeah. you got Think, Odin. Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about cheating. Mm. So I said last week when I went to Maverick, I don't like the idea of being completely horizontal watching. Oh, I would fall asleep. You would definitely fall asleep. It's really relaxed. It's really comfortable. It's too comfortable. Oh. I like to sit on nails when That's, I watch a film. I, I like to I like to be awake, <laughs> and it's really difficult to do. Um, so I'm cheating. So if if, if you know. Uh Give me your thoughts. I, I went to a beanbag cinema once in Newcastle. Oh, I can't. I imagine that's terrible. I couldn't get up at the end. Yeah. Why would you? You yeah. beanbag. But do you know what the one cinema I still haven't done? I still haven't done Kinnamar in the Woods. Oh, it's gorgeous. I need to do it. Yeah, it's one of the, one of the best. It's one of the one of only two cinemas that still use back projection as well. Desperately need that's it. In, that's in our shire in Lincolnshire. I think it's, it's it's got to be one of the more famous things around here. This is so different mm. from anything we've that other places have got. I need to go. I, what makes me laugh about Lincoln? Is yeah, we have the second most cinema, second most expensive cinema in the UK, next to 
you know, L- London's main Piccadilly yeah. Circus, like where they do all the premieres, uh, Odeon. We have the second most expensive. And then they opened an everyman cinema that was like, hold my beer. I, and, and so now we have the second and the third most expensive cinemas. I remember someone told me, it's like, oh, they do a limitless there as well. I was like, yeah, but I don't know when you thought I started shitting money. Mm. So no. So I was 15.99 to watch Empire Strikes Back. I've got it on DVD. I've watched it every other week. Why would I pay that amount of money? I still did. What I love the cinemas have started releasing, I don't know if you've seen, um, anniversary showings of James Bond at literally the exact moment that Amazon have started showing again. Sam, mm. watch them. Hey, remember when we did that Daniel Craig, James Bond episode and was talking about doing all the other Well, bonds? now we can. We probably can. And if we're yeah. going to work backwards, it's Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should skip. One, there's one there that's worth There's, I reckon there's two. But I nearly said is, good. I nearly said it, James. I, I would say, I, I'd say there's two good ones and two of maybe the worst films I've ever seen. That's our, that's our ballpark though, isn't it? That, <laughs> that is really, that's the bar we aim for. Yeah, that's good. Is if you're not going to do the great ones, do the shit ones. <laughs> don't, don't do the boring ones. I love, I love, I can't wait to see your face when we finally get around to Roger Moore because I, I can tell you'd hate Roger Moore and Bond. Oh no, I like the Roger Moore ones. Oh, good. Yeah, Moonrake is the silliest one out of all of them, but I quite enjoy it still. In hindsight though, now. Oh, right. So before we start talking, I've got to ask your opinion on something. So one of the films I've watched this week is a documentary. And it's a documentary I wouldn't recommend you watch. But I noticed that Elon Musk is he's being sipping, isn't he? There are on Netflix at this current moment five documentaries about how great Elon Musk is. Oh right. Which is something that's really weird. Someone that's just kind of like mm, World's Richest Man. World's Richest Man infiltrated like one of them. And you could tell he's gone for the views. He's like real life Iron Man. It's like, fuck off, where's his suit? Mm. <laughs> when did he go into space? <laughs> Bullshit. Yeah, I don't really know about Elon Musk. I don't know anything about him. No, neither do I. I'm not watching five documentaries on him, so fuck off. We're on Twitter now, so we've got to be careful what we say. That's true. Only joking. I don't care on Twitter. <laughs> I don't even go on it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Del Toro. Should we start there? Should we talk about other movies? What do you want to do? How do you want to play it? Um, you've got a lot of films. Do you want to start off with So here's one? some of them. I'll tell you some of the films okay, I watched this week. So because it was Del Toro week, I did watch Pacific Rim. Oh. Purely because I said to myself, it's the, fir- the first Del Toro movie I see I'm going to watch. Fucking, I wish Pan's Labyrinth came up. I'll put it there. I have my Shape of Water. I wish I watched Shape of Water <laughs> this week. I watched Pacific Rim. I did watch Halloween Kills, the follow-up to the 2018 movie. I think we should start there. Uh, I also watched, for some reason, The Change Up, Ryan Reynolds and uh, Jason Bateman. Oh my God. The Father with uh, Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. And I also watched Candyman, the 2021... Oh, the remake. Requel. Requel is a oh, reboot is... sequel. Yeah, I've seen some of those films. So Halloween Kills hit me with it. We'll start with Halloween Kills then, because uh, I don't know why. It was the other day. I tell you what, I was sleeping on the sofa, James, because uh, the uh, my my wife was ill oh. and uh, I didn't want to catch it. Don't blame me. So I thought I'd go downstairs and I couldn't sleep, so I put on Halloween. And I will tell you what, James, twenty <laughs> minutes gone. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to rewatch this movie the next day. Uh, Halloween Kills 2021 is the follow-up uh, slasher sequel to the 2018 movie, which saw Jamie Lee Curtis playing Laurie Strode returning to face Michael Myers four decades after a murderous rampage in Haddonfield. This is part two of a new trilogy with Halloween Ends coming out later on this year, and it's directed by David Gordon Green. The film picks up immediately after Halloween, the 2018 movie, where we last saw Mark and Myers slowly cooking in a basement barbecue. Yeah, do you remember how this trilogy was supposed to be the realistic one as well? Yeah. It was supposed to be realistic. He's just a man 
don't listen to any of that supernatural bollocks. Well, show me Halloween kills your realism. Yeah, it's. I liked. I I, I did like the 2018 Halloween movie because it had it had a you no, know storyline in there about how how terror, trauma, grief you know, can, can be inherited. And it, that film was about three generations of a family. They inherit, uh, they inherited a, uh, you know, the like trauma a, yeah. from it, from it. And if that movie didn't have Michael Myers in it, and it went back to a point I made last week about that nowadays we should revisit famous characters years later to see what they're doing. There's a great film in there about Laurie, Laurie Strode yeah, 40 years later. PTSD. It's never, it's never escaped there. And yeah. also if you, maybe it's just like, the shape, like he's still locked away, mm. but he's not escaping or anything. So she can never be hundred percent like calm. Yeah. There's always that 1% chance that he could have. And the movie channeled that. And it had this interesting, uh, dynamic in there, um, between like Laurie's daughter and daughter's daughter. So you had these three generations and there was enough in there for me to be like, yeah, that's okay. And it wasn't a run of the mill slasher. It had gore for the horror fans, but it wasn't over the top. Hold my beer. Halloween kills because <laughs> within five minutes, you know, you just can't put a good killer down, James, no. because Michael Myers gets out of that basement in Inferno while Laurie's on her way to the hospital, whilst all the survivors of the first endeavor are on the way to the hospital, and he kills about five firemen, each in a more brutal way, mm. in about the opening four minutes of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a bloodbath as it starts, isn't it? it? It's ridiculous. Straight away, but I was like, well, there's all the tone of that first movie gone completely. Because there's a lot. What what do you love about? What do you think the scariest moments of the original Halloween are? They are not the slamming scenes. They're the scenes where he's walking he's, like through houses yeah. and just just like you're watching him like like he could literally just kill anyone he wants to, but it's not that. It's the stalking mm. element. And they it's do the predatory it, tension. Yeah. And they do that well in the original in the Halloween from 2018. They do that well. Like the whole hysteria as well. Like it builds up like everyone thinks he's joking. And then the realization that they're in the graveyard and the granddaughter's like, oh my God. And she does a really good job of channeling the fact that, like, for 40 years she's heard this bullshit and then it's real. Mm. And I thought they do a really good job. Fucking none in this. Yeah. Yeah, that first one had layers to it that I quite mm. enjoyed. This one does fall into um, your standard sequel where the death count has to be higher, you know, the, the and they have to be more grisly, you know, because you have to give returning audience members something that they didn't see in the first movie. So you've got a turbo psycho in this movie and in, and um, Laurie reunites with Tommy, who you may remember from the original movie, was the little boy that Laurie was uh, babysitting. He rounds up a mob of vigilantes that are going to go and kill Michael Myers. This film is about the other survivors of the original uh, massacre. So it's it's the, um, you know, in the first movie, the 2018 one, it's about how Laurie Strode lived with the with the trauma. This is about how the town, the community lived with that trauma. It's mind-numbingly boring, this film. It, it, you know, if, you, if you're into hardcore, violent horror, then I think this probably ticks a lot of boxes. For people that want to see, you know, someone being chainsawed and someone being like, you know, speared through the face. So what I like, what the what works in its favour, so recently a few, which was actually probably tens of episodes ago, we were talking about the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. And there's like, they're all streaming it. Oh, it's not that bad. It. It's not that What bad. I like about it is it's not that. You know, set in modern times, you always feel like a filmmaker might choose that option. Mm. And luckily they do avoid that. Yeah, it, it's um, there. Are, there's bad acting, unfortunately. The, the deaths are ridiculous. The situation is ridiculous. It does callbacks. Now, if you're going to use callbacks in a movie, 
they can't distract you from the film you're watching. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yes. there's supposed to be a little nod and a little bit of a, can you remember how that was so great? You know, you talked about Maverick did that with the Top Gun movie. Yes. Kind of shows you key scenes that you might need to remember or it kind of gives you nods to build on that, why that character is feeling a way that they're feeling now. This, like, there's a, there's a, there's a callback scene about 10 minutes into this film um, and I think it's Will Patton's character, you you know, is is actually a character from the original in the 70s, the 78 movie, I think it was. So 78. Um, and the, the, the film then like just quickly changes for 10 minutes to show you this backstory about a cop and how he's like hell bent on revenge. It's like, yeah, that's what the first movie was supposed to give us. Mm. It's, it, I just, I've had it really, really poor. And, and now it's got two reasons. <laughs> do you know what? And watching this, there's there's probably like six deaths in the first 10 minutes and all of them are just so over the top and, you know, took away from that first movie where he would just come out of nowhere and stab someone and then that'd be it, you know. And Where he was kind of, there was a human quality to him. Despite, there was that human quality to him that he might be actual, genuinely evil. Like I, So, for example, it's, when you first meet Michael in 2018, he's in the, the home mm. and they show him the mask, which is probably a mistake. Two podcasters turn up. <laughs> Two podcasters. Hey, mate. <laughs> Shits and giggles, here's your old mask. <laughs> you don't see his face, but you see everyone reacting to him. Yeah. They do that really cool. Whereas, no spoilers, but the end of this film, Mike, he's literally taken out from like Halloween fucking resurrection, where he's just like, oh, what the f- mm. fuck? There's no rhyme, no reason. The suspense that you've built up, gone in seconds. Yeah, I, I like the first the 2018 one because she had 40 years to mentally and yeah. physically prepare. And she did. And I thought at the end of that movie, she was going to have him on his knees and take the mask off and be like, you are skin and bone. You are man. Fuck off. And it would have... They, they had a trilogy to make. Yeah, but they had a trilogy. <laughs> but they've, they've lost any chance of doing that because he's now half burnt, shot to hell, you know, and... Um, still fine. Still fine. Yeah, still fine. <laughs> he's still grand. <laughs> Walks on a nail. Ah, oh, oh, that hurts. That does... A bit yeah. of Lego. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that's how they were going to resolve this trilogy and be like, you are not... Um, you're not a mystic. You're yeah. Not, you're, not, you're, not, you're just, you're just a, a bloke. Yeah. yeah. And a shotgun will take that knee out. Bang! Oh, see you later. But it's not. It's kind of... All of a sudden, we're back in Supernatural. Everything yeah. that they tried to undo about them, them original... Tri- they, they, the, yes. In the 80s and the 90s, where they were like, oh, that's all bullshit. That's not canon. That's all ridiculous. They're like, oh, but we're going to do that now in this film. So I saw this at the cinema and I was having a conversation. I don't think I brought it. I think I might have mentioned it slightly, you know, at the beginning when we talk about new film. But I remember having a conversation with them and they loved it. I was like, but, but this to me isn't Halloween 2018. This is like a sequel to Halloween fucking for the curse of Mike Myers. Mm. Because what they did in Halloween 2018, they did such a good job of the ultimate victim, the ultimate hunter, and flipping it. Because in the end, he goes into her trap. Mm. Because Laura uh, Schroeder has been perfecting this for so long because she knew it was going to happen because he's that evil. So she planned it. And I like that his motivation is she is the one that got away. I want her. So he kind of like, at the end, he realises that he goes for her house. And, you know, it's quite clever. There's a human element to it. It's just like, he's not right in the head, but there's a... In this, he's just like, might as well just have chains for fucking fingers because he's just on beat. We said cheat codes, mate. There's nothing... I bought it. I hated it. I really yeah, didn't like I, it I at really all. I really struggled with it. The only, the only time I think I would... If I went to watch this at Halloween with a few mates... Maybe, yeah. And, and, and you got in that feel of it. You know, like... You know, like cause, Sorry to say it, but the majority of Christmas movies are boring and they're the same shit over yeah. three acts. But because it's Christmas, you get swept up in it. Yeah. And you enjoy it because your house is festive and you're looking forward to the big day and you're looking forward to like gifts and presents and food and all that kind of stuff. And so Christmas films get a free pass. 
But if you actually broke down most of the Christmas movies, they're they are formulaic yeah. and they're the same thing. And, Hall- and, and horror movies can, can be something like that. And, and in Hall- at Halloween, you know, when everyone's in that atmosphere, it could, I imagine it's quite enjoyable as a slasher scare fest. But watching it, you know, at home, think, try, trying to get something from it that the film has not given me. There's, there's literally a scene about like the, the, one of the first deaths in it after he's killed a whole like, you know, group of firefighters. Um, hey, there's this woman in a house that he takes a light bulb down from under the kitchen cabinet and then stabs her through the neck with it. And and the thing is, like, he walked past so many, like, knives and stuff that he could have used. And I thought, that's just so extra. He is extra. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's going... It, that's going beyond the realm of what's just quick and convenient. What, what I love about it's is, not ergonomical killing. <laughs> what, what I love about this is, is if it's set now, and you had podcasters and they were talking about the second night of terror, they go, "Oh, I think, I think he's trying to make a point about energy prices." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a much better film, <laughs> and, and that's it. Am I the dick for thinking this film had more to it? But the first two thousand eighteen, the first two thousand one, gave did. me that impression that this was a smart trilogy. Yes. Yeah, Undone immediately. It even it even takes this film also takes elements of like the second one. So without going to spoilers, like mob rule that type of thing. That's all in the second the second Halloween film. And it's a really good idea in, in principle. It's like this character is terrifying people to the point that his vigilante law mm. has to break out. It, it, all it ends up is very disappointing third act. I, I, I don't want to get into spoilers because. It is there weird. is a third film coming and I'll probably weird. watch it. It is weird. Oh, well, because you've got to finish it, haven't you? It is weird as well because it shows you in a flashback sequence how he was arrested on the night of her death. Because in, uh, sorry, the original massacre, because in the original film, he falls out the window and then... <laughs> Quite clearly goes up a ramp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that was in the reshoot, wasn't yeah. it? Um, but, you know, and then when he, when Pleasance looks out, he's, his body then disappears and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's off in the wind. This then picks picks up the question well how did he get arrested and I genuinely was expecting like they tranked him or something because how do you put handcuffs on him hit him with the boss <laughs> and, and, and with it yeah it's something though do you know yeah. what I mean something that it, it, with this it's just like 10 of them put guns on him and yeah. it's, what did he do like oh you're right sorry yeah I'll come with you I'll come quietly oh, you got me yeah, <laughs> fair and square if there was nine of you ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, you just wait four years I'll develop supernatural powers and you're all fucked that's it that's it. Yeah, uh, I didn't like it. I'm, I'm quite, I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm quite glad because despite the fact critics, I'm fairly certain went 50-50. I think this is one of these films that audiences quite liked. I didn't. I think, I think Blue Mouse dropped the ball with this, especially when you, but I quite liked Halloween 2018. Yeah, I did. I, I think I could have given Halloween Kills more credit if it had the tension. Yeah. At the, at the end of the day in a horror movie, good, bad, or whatever, it needs tension you for need- it to pass as... You know, you can get some that are, you know, have a social narrative. You know, I'm going to talk about Candyman in in this episode. And, or, you know, or you could have films that are just a nuts and bolts thriller. I, I, you know, it could be whatever. But for, for for me, for it to be horror, it's got to have tension. Not just blood, guts, gore and violence, like actual genuine tension. Well, yeah, because the jump scares, you need to be on the edge of your seat to get them really there. Yeah, you look at a film like, and it's, God, it's worlds apart. If you look at a, a film like... Um, Midsummer. Midsummer. yeah. The whole point of that movie is it's all in daylight. Christ, the tension in that film. Yeah. That's so weird that you went to it when I was trying to... Oh, that's you, so weird. So Midsummer it, to me, is a lot better than Hereditary. Mm. And I think Midsummer. It was listening to you actually talk about it being in the daylight, so it adds an extra level of tension because you don't normally... Halloween film, scary films, yeah. set at night. Event Horizon, one of the scary films I've ever seen, set in space where there is no natural light. So uh, when I remember watching Midsummer, I was like, different. Mm. And I'll give it to... 
Ariasta. Mm. Is it Ariasta? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll give him that. It was hereditary. I still maintain a bunch of balls. Oh, yeah. We'll but, always differ on that. But Midsummer, that's, that's a, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a bit of me, that is. I do quite like Midsummer. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I, I'm probably going to rewatch it at some point. Um, yeah, Halloween Kills now. Not on the list. No, I will watch Halloween Ends though. To uh, yeah, end. but to see that's genuinely, genuinely well watching because I'll go. They're not ending this. Mm. Maybe this is just Alien versus Predator Requiem it and just drop a bomb on Haddonfield. Yeah, like they all go. Yeah, I'm alright with that. It, it needs a full it, stop now, doesn't it? It races fifty years of bad movies. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, Halloween Kills, unfortunately. That's now on Scar Cinema. It's a shame, though, that, and I'm going to say this now, it's a shame that Mike Meisner made it to space like so many of horrors other icons. There is still time. <laughs> there is still time. Um, just very quickly, I watched the change up this week. God knows why. The because only thing Jason, I can think of is Jason Bateman. I was going to say, it's Jason Bateman, you've come off this Ozark high. Mm. That's what it is. I can guarantee that's what it was. Yeah, I, I think I, I hovered over it. I knew the film. It's also, it's the kind of film that Ryan Reynolds you know, made his name for after things like Van Wilder and two guys ago on the pizza place. The bits that he ignores now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The things that he kind of tries to distance himself from now when he's, you know, a businessman. The change is that, you know, that body swap comedy we've seen done a hundred times where you take a chalk and cheese character, but you know, maybe male and female, maybe people that are at different stages of their life, like mother and daughter, you know, we've seen this a hundred times. We've seen it recently with Friday with a uh, with a uh, screen queen and the serial killer swapping bodies. The changeup is no different to that. You have Jason Bateman, uh, who's Dave, and you have Mitch, played by Ryan Reynolds. The two of them are uh, college friends that have grown apart. One's growing up too fast. One's not growing up at all. So they're at pole, different positions in their lifestyle. They're still best mates, though. Well, <laughs> but they just don't see each other enough. No, no. You know what I mean? Like Dave's, you know, he's about to make partner at a firm. He's got two kids on the way. You know, he's, he married young. They've got the nice house, you know, and all that stuff. But he's missing that. He didn't get that, you know, young, you know, free-spirited, you know, going out and drinking, partying kind of feeling. Mitch has never grown up. You know, he's still doing that kind of stuff. Um, Ryan Reynolds' character, he wants to be an actor. He's, you know, got a destroyed relationship with his dad and, you know, all this kind of stuff. They meet up for a drink that's long overdue and, um, you know, compare stories. They both seem to want each other's lifestyle. Um, you know, one wants the stability, one wants the freedom. They go it's, to... It's almost as if though that one of them could do that. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, yeah, like, it's, yeah, it's like yeah. one of them's like, yeah, you j- could just settle down. Yeah, Jason Bateman looks at it, Ryan Reynolds is like, well, just stop. <laughs> just stop Just stop sleeping around. Just stop Get Van Wilder. Up. Talk to your dad. <laughs> Send him a text. Your dad's Alan Arkin. Talk to him. <laughs> and the two of them um, go to... So, piss so, on so literally so the change-up is called the text. He sends a text. He's like, all right, yeah, cheers. Well, he, he, they, they're both, uh, after a night of heavy drinking, go and urinate on a fountain. At the same time, there's like an electrical blackout. Obviously. And then, lo and behold, the next morning when they wake up, they have swapped bodies. And then hijinks ensue because you now have Ryan Reynolds in Jason Bateman's body. You know, so Jason Bateman changes from being the, you know, the straight-laced character to the actor, you know, the kind of, um, the loose-lipped free spirit. And now all of a sudden you've got Mitch, who was, you know, the crazy hippie, like no boundaries in lifestyle, now is very straight-laced. And it's comedy, James. It's comedy, James. Uh, do you know what? I've seen this film. And I, the only thing I remember about this film is I've seen it. <laughs> and Olivia Wilde in it. Olivia Wilde is in it. I thought I'd leave that little uh, <laughs> that little that little nugget out until you fished it yourself. But no, that's literally I just remember it being bad. <laughs> it's just not fun. Yeah, it's just got Leslie Mann in it. Um Yes, who plays the wife. Yeah. It's, it's, you know what do you watch it the other day? It was a it was a perfectly good uh fillet between like, you know, I just watched Halloween Kills. I was gonna watch Candyman, I put this on. It opens with a scene of 
because I'm like obviously a new dad as well. And it does open mm. with a scene of Jason Bateman having to wake up in the middle of the night because his kids are screaming. And then as he's trying to change a nappy, you know, it's like, it's poo jokes. It's the lowest bar, James. I get it. <laughs> but as someone who's had to get up and do nappies and stuff. And, and yeah, it, there, there is a part of it. That, and I've just come off Ozark, so I'm a big Bateman fan. What I do like about it, and I think I imagine is a, is a actor's dream is Ryan Reynolds. No, I'm going to keep Ryan Reynolds out of it actually. Cause it, cause he only really has that one character. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, but, right? <laughs> yeah. Ryan Reynolds for the first 10 minutes gets to play Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. And then Jason Bateman for the majority of the film gets to play as Ryan Reynolds. And, yeah. and that's quite, I imagine as an actor, that's really quite fun. You have, you have really 10 minutes to the opening of that movie to set the bar for the character that then the other one is then going to have to adopt. Yeah. Like, Face Off does that quite well in my Face opinion. Face Off is a great example of that. Yeah. So, you know, Nicolas Cage has to be cast to Troy and you've got to, to so know that the, person. Yeah. So that when John Travolta does it, you get, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly it. So I, I think, you know, and, and Ryan Reynolds, this is home territory because he's playing Ryan Reynolds. So for the first 10 minutes, he just plays himself. Mm. And Bateman then gets to have fun when he turns into that character and he is that character. And Bateman's scenes are the best scenes. You know, naturally there is a, uh, a big, uh, appointment at a firm you know there's a deal that he's brokering and you know and if he gets it he's going to be made a partner so of course it's that slapstick comedy you know where he's going to go in and he's going to ruin it but he's an actor so he thinks he can just act like a lawyer but he doesn't know what he's talking about and it's that cringy but also funny kind of comedy and Bateman pulls it off I think he does this is ballpark safety for Ryan so yeah. it's not particularly acted bad it's just that Although this movie was, when was it? It was uh, 2011. It does feel like 2001. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot older than it feels. Yeah, I think so. I just, I just, it's just not. I just, why? I think, I don't remember hating it, but I don't remember like leaving the viewing going, that was amazing. There's a good, you know, there is a, you know, it is guy chat, but they're at the bar and Ryan Reynolds is talking about Tatiana and how she comes over every Tuesday night. And then of course when they swap bodies and, Jason Bateman in Ryan Reynolds' body is, you know, it's like three in the morning and then someone knocks at his door and then you kind of, and he's like, Tatiana. <laughs> it just, there are some scenes in it where I was like, that's quite good. But the, the, my problem with comedy like this is you always want to distance yourself from American Pie. Mm. And so there are some jokes where you're like, ah, we're, we're kind of dangerously in, um, you know, so the, the uh, on this, on the poster it says, from the director of Wedding Crashes and the writer of The Hangover. <sighs> The writers. There was more than one writer on The Hangover. Christ. Yeah, because um, I can't even think of a joke. I don't... See, that's a trilogy of films that I detest. I don't I don't even like the first one. I think The Hangover was just bad film. There's a good film in The Hangover. There, there is, you know, maybe it's a guy thing, but about, you know, just go, go, <laughs> going drinking and like... Blacking out. Blacking out and be like, where's where's the best mate that you've lost? <laughs> there's, there yeah. is, there's something in there. But um, yeah, the second and third movie were terrible. The Change Up, I, I don't know why I watched it. And I watched it all, James. I watched it all. <laughs> you fall asleep by 20 minutes. You live in a world where I could have turned it off and I didn't. It's funny that you should mention that because I was going to save my phone so I don't have as many as you. But naturally it's come up. And I know we will get on to Gilmore Del Toro, but luckily you know, when something comes up naturally, you're supposed to do it. So Netflix have just brought out uh, the latest film from Rebel Wilson called Senior Year. This is the same storyline. Is that's that's why. So in 2002, Stephanie is the head cheerleader and favorite to be named prom queen. She has it all until a jealous cheerleader sabotages her routine. Stephanie hits her head and ends up in a 20 year coma. Do you know what's so bad about this though? What is that? Like 
So we've done this where someone wakes up and they 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 are in a timeline. That yes, it's now foreign to them. Yeah, so it's Rebel Wilson wakes up as Rebel Wilson. So she's still got the mind of a seventeen year old, but her body years, is. But the year's two thousand two. Yeah, so twenty two. Sorry. So no, it's twenty years. So it's not a time travel. She wakes up in the no, year no. But 20, what I mean is, she the, thinks the, it's two thousand two. The time she thinks is is two thousand two. Yes, I'm used to seeing these movies where someone wakes up that's, and it's the eighties. That's the point I yeah. was going to make. So it's really bad that it's like it said. I was alive in two thousand and two. Well, that's the thing is, all the characters are alive. All they've done is is age. So what it is is who I've got here, Stephanie in the twenty year old comment. Stephanie must now deal with being seventeen year old in a thirty seven year old body. Hilarity does not ensue. <laughs> what it deals with, it deals with like high school and basically what it means to be popular. So she was a cheerleader, but now in twenty twenty two, everyone's woke, so they don't have competitions anymore. So in America and the cheerleader isn't the most popular person. It's the influencer who's got like nineteen million followers on Instagram. Mm. And they're they're nice to everyone. So there's not a, it's not a natural bully. But then the person who put her in a coma lives in her dream house with her dream man that she used to date. But here's the thing. All medium, writing films, they are for an audience. That's why they're created. I don't know who the audience is for because it's obviously not for our generation because 2002, 20, those 20 years, I know it sounds very stupid, they don't really change that much to me. Mm. So what I find really is, why would she find it more difficult? Now, if it was in the 80s, I would understand between the 80s and the millennium. I'll tell you what it is, James. I told you about a little film that came out in the mid-90s called Forever Young with Mel Gibson. We was cryogenically frozen and he was a World War II pilot waking up in the 90s, James. That had a culture shock to it. He didn't know what all these exactly. things were, like telephones and TVs. But, but she wakes up in 2022 and then she's given a phone and she's like, she thinks it's this big deal. But I was like, I'm fairly certain in 2022 we had mobile phones. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, we did, we? Yeah, we did, did we? we? Did we? We had Tamagotchis. <laughs> That's what I mean. So, so 2002 doesn't seem that alien to me. Yeah. And, but it's, it's, it's played off for his life. Like she brings, a, she brings some of the older times back. And like, well, it was 20 years ago. <laughs> it's not that, it's not mm. that different. It's it's a bad film. And I love Rebel Wilson. But the problem with Rebel Wilson is she does shit films. She's so much funnier than Melissa I think. Melissa McCarthy thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Melissa McCarthy, yeah, he's, definitely. He's, he's brilliant and funny and can do serious acting and, and can like genuinely tell you a story through her acting that you actually get involved in, but then does, does fucking crap. does crap. I think Rebel Wilson, the the difference is is at least Linda uh, McCarthy's got those in her pocket. You know, she's got the Oscar nominated film. Ruby, uh, Rebel Wilson doesn't. And that's a shame because I'm is it, really is, like... Is it, is, is it because it, we're just the wrong audience for these films? Yes, but that's the thing. So I don't understand who it's for. So surely it's not for teenagers because from 2002, what would they care? Mm. So I don't know genuinely who the film is made for. The jokes are played out in a way that is supposed to be like, oh, she lives in a time where you weren't woke. But 2002, maybe because I'm looking at it through like tinted glasses... It wasn't that different. It wasn't. It wasn't that not woke, was it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't get me wrong. Oh fuck it, I don't know. It was a bad film. I didn't enjoy it. It, it and it it randomly plays. So you've got two characters playing this character. The sixteen-year-old actress did a much better job than Robert Wilson did of playing a sixteen-year-old actress, a uh, sixteen-year-old character. But mm. but you, why am I then surprised by that? She's actually sixteen. <laughs> well, um, Star Wars: Attack of the Clones came out in two thousand two, so maybe she put herself in the coma. <laughs> That's the only thing I can think of. Ben yeah. Affleck was voted people's sexiest man alive. Well, that's why she's done it. <laughs> that's why she's done it. Yeah. Oh, but for example, they go into her room and everything's the same. But, oh. there's, but there's stuff on the film, there's stuff on the like the side, which I recognise. I was like, oh, that's... that's. Did they, did, they re- did they reference that Britney and Justin Timberlake broke up in 2002? I think, that, oh, they, I'm fairly certain she had an S-Sync, 5-Sync. 
what NY sync? What was that band that Justin you, was in? Do you catch that? Is that something that you have to go to the doctors to get you, rid of? You, you can tell I was never a teenage girl. <laughs> it was the year that Christian Aguilera brought out the dirty uh, the album that stripped. Must, that must have been before the coma. Uh, after the coma, because I think come Rumor on. has it, she's still not clean. <laughs> Michael Jackson. Oh dear God. <laughs> Stop there. <laughs> oh dear. But no, it's uh, it's a really bad film. Uh, it, right, so the pinnacle of this is, so her ex-boyfriend that she dated when she, so obviously she's still 16 in the head, mm. so she still wants this guy because, you know, it's just been a day for her. But they do sort of jokes like, before the dad goes into a coma, uh, sorry, before she goes into a coma, her dad works at Blockbuster. Ooh. Wow. Then when she comes out of a coma, it's never referenced, but he's no longer wearing a Blockbuster's uniform. And you're like, wow, that's clever. Yeah. That's the cleverest writing in the film. But, do, do you know that Netflix are bringing out a, a blockbuster movie, I, which I, is the biggest kick in the nuts ever? Well, yeah, this Netflix is, is the One thing of that the reasons, our business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a dick move. Well, I just want to say as well, uh, Vanessa Carton's A Thousand Miles came out in 2002. So if that's, if that's not in the go. soundtrack. Yeah, there you go. Then they've done that wrong. Um, a senior year, bottle of shit. <laughs> Big old bottle of shit. Don't watch it. Avril Lavigne bought out her debut album. Nickelback's How You Reminds Which, Me. Seriously. I've got that film. That, that song feels like it's... This is, wait a minute, Spider-Man just come out. Spider-Man had just come you out. You must have just come out then. Yeah, well, I, well, it's because they brought out the song Hero for Spider-Man. Oh, there you go. <sighs> Hero, wait, hold on. There's my virginity growing back. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Chad, we'll get it. I, I, um, I, I, I do... I do uh, not going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I started that sentence but, and then realised where I was going. But, I'm not going to watch it. But I would just like to point out something as well. I was so angry when this film ended because I pay for Netflix and that is what they've decided to channel my money into. When you've got, you know, you're waiting on the sidelines for Stranger Things, your season four to come out and this is how they spend their time in between it. Fuck you. I, I'm dangerously close to quitting Netflix because their TV is perfect and spot on. I'm looking forward to Witcher, looking forward to all these things. But their movies, they haven't brought out a decent original film, in my opinion, for a while. I'm probably forgetting a huge one, but yeah. their film part is fucking annoying. Power of the dog. Maybe I'll just short. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. What, what's, what, what's happening is it's getting harder to find those good movies. Yeah. It's getting harder and harder to find the, the good stuff amongst the, the, the crap. Mm. You know, but then it, like with all streaming services, I don't think you're ever really 100% like get a real grasp for what's on there. Cause there's just so much content yeah, now. That's true. You know, like you say, it's all algorithms and it's, and you know, is it because Rebel Wilson's camp have paid for that movie to be on the front screen? Netflix do not release figures. So how do you actually know that number one on Netflix is number, number one, one chart is actually the most amount of downloads? I have noticed it's always something that I don't want to watch. <laughs> so mm. yeah. Is it, is it just like you say, kind of Rebel Awesome's camp kind of put a bit of money under the table to That's Netflix. So make this on everyone's home screen. I think Netflix needs it because it's a Netflix original. They probably desperately wanted people to watch it. You shouldn't. Mm. Just don't watch it. Uh, so I appreciate that Halloween Kills isn't off to a great start and neither is the change-up or senior year. However, though, we're about to talk to someone who is top dollar. Absolute top tier for a person that has a relatively small filmography in the sense that you think 22 films directed or, or, or uh, pieces of art directed... You know, we've often talked about actors like Nicolas Cage and, and stuff who were in the, you know, over 100 acting credits or whatever. So 22 to pick from. And bearing in mind, some of them are short. Some of them are, um, you know, uh, unofficial sequels or or continuations of things like Hellboy or whatever. Anyway, I'm skirting around it. Guillermo del Toro is a Mexican film director, writer, producer and actor. 
From a young age, Del Toro showed an interest in creating films, starting in makeup and effects. Uh, and he made his first short film in his early 20s, became an executive producer at 21, and formed his own company and directed many Mexican television programs in his early 20s. You go, you are them some proud parents. Mm. I love as well that he was into special effects and makeup. He shows. He shows with his love of practical effects and his imagination. There's a lot of points I want to make. Apparently uh, saw Frankenstein very young, you know, from what was it like 31 or whenever that movie came out and then saw that and was like, I want to make monster movies. It's really funny you mentioned that because there's a whole subgenre of films that he's been signed or trying to make up for and Frankenstein's on that list. He's always tried to make his own version of Frankenstein and always gets turned down. Dark universe, man. We need it. Mm. Um. His 1993 film Kronos was met with extremely positive reviews uh, from fans and film critics. I think it went on to win uh, a whole bunch of um, awards. Again, ignorance from myself. I don't know what the Mexican film awards is, mm. but you know, very, very highly credited. Um, by 1997, he made his way to Hollywood to make the movie Mimic. Yeah, even I've seen Mimic. Yeah, we talked about Mimic a few weeks well, back. Mimic is weirdly that film that keeps coming up at the minute. Yeah, we talked about this. In and the sense that, Yeah, if you haven't... <laughs> so just, just, so just so we're clear, Mimic is the one where there's a, a new species of insect that they then biologically create a super insect to kill those insects. Yeah. They do the job, but then years later, those yeah. insects have not proliferated. They've not no. died. They've In fact, they've turned into new insects. <laughs> they've turned into a super thing that now has a taste for human. Yeah, because apparently that's how it works. In, in hindsight... Bit ant killer, <laughs> just just a bit of poison. Um, but apparently, Mimic didn't uh, go down well with um, Del Toro's first experience of um, American filmmaking. He did then return to Mexico, only coming back to do Blade Two, then Hellboy, and then the incredible Pan's Labyrinth. What would follow would be Hellboy Two, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, Shape of Water, Nightmare Alley, and then next, uh, sorry, later this year we get Pinocchio, a Netflix original. <laughs> which you McGregor, have you seen the trailer? Yes. Yeah, so the cheeser trailer is Ewan McGregor as the narrator, isn't he? Um, but I, I do think Pinocchio is is that wonderfully twisted story that in, in the hands of a, you know, and I know it's not everyone's favourite, but your Tim burton Del Toro kind of films. It, it The source material, you know, Pinocchio, like in, in the folklore was, he was constantly hung and just never died. Like, it's quite yeah. a graphic tale. Oh, there's loads of stuff. He kills Jiminy Cricket because most people's experience of uh, Pinocchio is the animated film from mm. the 30s. So hopefully <laughs> they stick to the source material. Hopefully. Well, probably. Probably, yeah. <laughs> it depends if Disney still own the copyright to it, in, in which case we won't. We'll get a uh, completely watered-down version. But I anyway. assume not, purely because it's coming out on Netflix and not Disney+. Plus. True, true. There's another Pinocchio film coming out as well, isn't there, with Tom Hanks? Or is that the same one? I don't know. With Tom Hanks plays Geppetto. Uh, I don't know. Is it the same one? I don't know. Because they often do this where if Snow White's coming out, two studios will try and bring out their Snow White first. <laughs> and then that's why you get films like The Huntsman because a certain film, a certain studio will try and take a different spin on the film rather than just making the classic. Anyway, um, his writing credits uh, would include... Things like 2020's The Witches, The Royal Doll, 2019's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. He also has writing credits for The Hobbit, including The Battle of the Five Armies. Of course, he also wrote Mimic 2, but he didn't He didn't saddle up to direct that one. <laughs> Not even he was taking any part in that. Yeah, he is a two-time Oscar winner amongst other Oscars, such as uh, uh, other awards like BAFTAs and stuff. He is a two-time Oscar winner. There must be two Pinocchios because David Bradley's playing Mas uh, just Petto and... The Netflix one. 
Is he? Yeah. David Bradley. David Bradley. The uh, Finch from yeah. Harry Potter. Yeah. 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 Game of Thrones. Yes. Auto bastard in that. Auto bastard. <laughs> yeah. So they often do this, like, particularly with the big ones. Like, so, the, you know, the, the, we talked about, like, in 1997, Hercules. There's actually two animated Hercules movies. Now, when one of them is the juggernaut Disney, and the <laughs> other one is a small independent art house uh, animation studio. We only really know the, the Disney one. But... The old Armageddon Deep Impact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, his style of directing could be described as a hybrid alchemy, blending horror, gothic, fantasy, sci-fi, B-movie, noir, comic book, and animation. His love for makeup and visual effects mixed with his creative vision for CGI means films can create worlds where giant machines battle monsters and amphibious creatures escape laboratories. Oh, that's a very good way of putting it. Monsters play a huge role in Del Toro's worlds, but not always as the villain, sometimes as um, a guide or even a love interest, often a metaphor. For example, the monster in the shape of water represents the fear of the unknown, but also the fear of the Cold War that is looming in the background of the movie. Described as a visionary, uh, Del Toro is a fan of building sets instead of using green screens. He also pushes visual effects technology, most notably, again, in the film Shape of Water. The underwater effect used throughout that film is now accredited um, as the dry-for-wet style of filmmaking, which was achieved using lighting and visual effect augmentation. Del Toro uses uh, specific color palettes to enhance stories and create moods and evoke emotions from uh, audience members. And like auditors like Wes Anderson, Tim Burton, Del Toro's films are instantly recognisable from his art style. He's Mm. one of them guys, we talked about Wes Anderson recently on a podcast, we talked about Tim Burton, we talked about uh, Tarantino. When you have someone with a filmography that's, um, it's quality over quantity. It shows. It shows because you you see the, the, you know, what threads everything together, the set, the hand-picked actors, um, you know, the, the, um, the costume design the filters that they're using, the cinematography, it's all, it's all there. It's all thought through. You know, he's not a director for hire. He takes on projects, takes on passion projects. Also, apparently he uses his, he doesn't, he has a casting agent that he often uses, but will not use them for the main roles. Apparently he's very, one of the first directors or one of the only directors who literally go, I've got you this part. If you don't take it, I'm not making the movie. Mm. Obviously big ones being, um, Doug Jones. He refuses yeah. to do a film unless Doug Jones, he literally like, I'm jumping ahead now, but when he did Shape of Water, he rang him up and was, I need you to do this. Doug Jones didn't want to do that role again because he felt it was too much like uh, Abraham Sapien, his character from the Hellboy, Hellboy series. Yeah. And he said, no, you're the love interest. And he was like, how are you going to do that? And he went, I'll show you. Mm. And so he loves working with it. Ron Perlman, apparently, we always trying to get Ron Perlman. Yeah, well, Ron Perlman was in Kronos, the original, like the one was highly accredited. But, you know, he is, he is Hellboy. I like David Harbour. You know, but that Hellboy movie was not great. No. It's a bag of shit, and I would have put it in the pit. Golden if, Army's great. We, it, it, I rewatched those films yesterday, because mm. I ended up in Lincoln, and everyone was busy, and I rewatched Hellboy and Hellboy 2. Mm. And, um, Joel, can I just start with giving myself a little speech? Yeah, go, go. So I'm not a big fan of Tim Burton's art style, because it's very samely. Um, I've got a greater appreciation, especially through you talking about what it means for you, your childhood, that, that inspiration that's a bit different, dark, gothic, takes a simple story and plays with it imaginatively. So visually it is different. So it can tell you a darker story or it can explore themes. Gamoro del Toro is my Tim Burton. Mm. He is fascinating. His prosthetic work, his vision, what he sees, how he lays out a film, how he 
how he plays with the characters, <clears throat> the stories he tells, and the fascinating risks he takes are some of the best cinema I'll ever see. Gamora del Toro puts me in a seat. I have basically been struggling for this week going, is he my favourite director? Looking at the films he doesn't do are more fascinating. Like, like he really wants to do Frankenstein. He really mm. wants to do H.P. Lovecraft. He wants to do that, but... but the stories he want to tell other directors, Ridley Scott did Prometheus, which basically tanked Gomer del Torres um, when he was trying to get a HP Lovecraft story told because they didn't want to take another risk because Prometheus was a bag of wank. <laughs> but The Hobbit, he wanted to do story. He's principled. He only wanted, he said, I can't tell Hobbit over three films. Mm. He's like, I can, I can do two, but I don't want to take it. I don't want to change it. <clears throat> Blade 2 was a risk. Blade 2, because he came back to this country, the mimic wasn't great. It's a film I've not seen for years, so I can't really talk about specifically why I didn't like it. It just wasn't fun. But Blade 2 was at a time when comic books weren't great. It's probably just Blade. <laughs> it was Blade, the yeah. earliest stars. Blade 2 is an, an R-rated film where vampires are heroin addicts. <laughs> they're, they're like smackheads, different, crazy, using CGI. Now, don't get me wrong. CGI in Blade 2 is pretty poor when we look back on it, but it was the first and I really like Gamora del Toro. And I love the fact that he sticks, he stays loyal to certain, not just actors, but also methods of telling the story. Pan's Labyrinth is a film told in Spanish. It's about a Spanish, the Spanish Civil War. And, a, and you know, well, it's not just that, but. <laughs> then, the, the beautiful thing about that movie as well is, is the little girl, she represents Spain. Mm. You know what I mean? So his, his films are layered. We talked about at the start of this episode, Halloween Kills is, is a nuts and bolts. Just, yeah. just watch a load of people get massacred. <laughs> you know, like Del Toro's movies, they have layers to it. Mm. You know, and they're not spoon-fed as well. You kind of, you do have to look at it. But Pan's Labyrinth is a great example of that, of what's going on in the, let's just call it reality, versus what's happening in her, um, I suppose, her kind of imagination and then her the alternate world that she goes to mirrors that reality in a fantasy horror kind of way. It, it, they're really good and it's, that's in Shape of Water as well the, the amphibious creature represents the fear of the unknown and the Cold War there's a narrative in the background of that movie about spies and about the Cold War that's happening I always find he is without meaning to as well he's one of the greatest tension directors of all time um, there are scenes when we start talking about it, I'll give you more specific examples but off the top of my head he gives an actor like Michael Shannon a soliloquy to deliver while Michael Shannon's pulling off his own two fingers that are dead yeah. in a film it, the tension is so... It's, I want to not be watching the screen. My, Michael Sands is one of my favourite actors. Put him together with one of my favourite directors, mate. There's no way I'm not going to love the piss out of Shape of Water. Mm. Um, I do like Shape of Water when Michael Shannon goes to the men's room. Oh, that's, and, that's another thing I was going to say. The writing as well is just like, there's only two types of men. Sorry. Yeah. Just, no, no, I was going to say, he washes his hands before he goes before. to the toilet. <laughs> he's got that much respect for himself. And like uh, Octavius Fletcher is like, you're not going to wash him before? He's like, nope, he's got too much respect for myself. Yeah. It just, his characters are fascinating. His, his actors, you can tell, love working for him. It annoys me that we're talking about quality over quantity because I think you should just be given the ball and run. H.P. Lovecraft, or like like you said, a dark universe, something different, gothic. Look at what he's done with with um, intellectual properties that aren't, would you say, massive. The mm. biggest example being is, and whoever is in charge of uh, release dates at Miramax or whoever it was, and put up the Golden Army against the Dark Knight is a twat. Yeah. Bring it out a month before or two months after and people will be talking about The Golden Army being one of the best comic book films of all time. I'm going to tell you now, because it fucking is. Yeah, it's such a disappointment. I, I remember going to the cinema to watch Dark Knight. Every it, There was nine screens at Lincoln Odeon, all of them Dark Knight. The small one was like Golden Army. And I went, what's The Golden Army? Oh yeah, the Hellboy 2's out. Yeah. 
It, and it, it bombed because of what a juggernaut to go against. What was why? It's like it when was, a Nolan movie comes out. Don't release anything don't when release a Nolan movie comes out. So to me, he's a visionary. And when we start talking about this, it, the, the rise of the secondary characters, the scary things. One of the scariest characters I'll ever see in a film, the pale man. Yeah. He yeah, fucking yeah. eats children. His eyes are in his hands. He looks, and I'm just describing there, I ain't told you anything. If you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, you will terrify it. Mm. Oh God, that, that genuinely freaks me out. She's trying to climb a ladder. There's this fucking pale man mm. <laughs> running at her. It's terrifying. Yeah, I love Pan's Labyrinth. It's a wicked film. So good. So good. I'm going to go, let's go to Blade 2 because we talked about that off, off the bat. And if we're looking chronologically, now I know film fans and maybe uh, Del Toro enthusiasts would say there are films that we're skipping. I haven't seen Kronos and it's been so long since I've seen Mimic. It would be unfair. And The Devil's about. Backbone, which I know is one of those that he was accredited um, when he went back to Mexico and started making films. The Devil's Backbone is one that's very, very highly um, regarded with film fans, but I just haven't seen it. Mm. Now, I, I have seen, starting probably around, um, well, it, actually, yeah, I suppose it's Blade 2 would be the one to look at. Blade 2. So again, coming back for a sequel, that the problem with Blade 2 isn't actually his fault. The massive problem with Blade 2 is you made such a big deal about Chris Christopherson dying in the first one. There's no reason for him to be back in the second one. But, you know, people shoehorn things in there. But Blade 2, for me, stylistically, take away the CG, take away the CGI fights, the way the vampires open their mouth, the darkness. It's darker somehow in this film. Wesley Snipes seems to be more rain. Del Toro uh, gets the best out of his guys. Norman Regis popping up for a bit mm. as a... Like one of the words is if you didn't see that coming because you can't have two secondary characters he's quite clearly a villain but then again who's he got he's got Ron Pillman so he's, he had this really good idea where Blade now and I'm not saying it's him it's obviously script writers but the film coexists with Blade now teaming up with other vampires to kill this the like, Reapers the, the Reapers the yeah. second level of vampires and um, it's a really good film I yeah. really like it it's one of those films that is the first one better probably because it was something new something dark it was a comic book film but not really because none of us watched Blade or Red Blade <laughs> Um, and this was fantastic. Like the idea of heroin addicts, mm. ultra changeable, ultra violent. It was really good. I really liked this film. Yeah. And, and a lot of the credits to this movie as well goes to Wesley Snipes. He just carries that performance of Blade into this film effortlessly. And Blade is such a cool character. And um, but I remember watching this film when it starts and you see, you know, one of the Reapers kind of being taken in by vampire police, let's just call them. And, <laughs> and on the CCTV, you see this, this, this thing killed him quite horrifically and yeah. then his mouth opens up and I remember watching be like what the fuck is this exactly and being hooked to it I mean I did watch this on DVD I, did, I wasn't obviously 18 when it came out so Del Toro does a sound uh, does a uh, so this was back when DVDs had extras he does a director's commentary I think Wesley Snipes does a separate one or they're on the same one and he talks about how the choices he made in the film to make it because at the end he kills a vampire that got away from him who's in a who's in a in a peep show type thing and Del Toro talks about how they had to remove all of the effluence yeah. <laughs> it's really it was really cool I think from then I, I really just was fascinated because he was talking about how he was building and layering the story he was when so I think his argument was it's a, it's a very basic story because it turns out spoilers that the main guy is actually related to the king vampire so it's actually the, the old tale of son replacing father but he was talking about but to me the real story is is Blade and I can't remember the head reaper the original, he talks about they have respect for each other, but they have to kill each other because none can coexist. And he was like, that's the story mm. I want to tell. So again, takes an ultra violent film like Blade and kind of gives it that extra spin, that extra edge. Yeah. 
I really enjoyed it when it came out. And, and do you know what? I, I do remember in 2002 watching it when you put it again. Whereas, whereas when I watched Spider-Man mm. that year, I, Spider-Man felt like effort, like the effects just seemed glorious. And yeah. Blade, I was like, oh, that's that CGI. Yeah. But actually going back now when you watch Spider-Man, you're like, oh, it's, it's not, it's not, it's, as good it's as not aged as good as it did. But the two, you know, Spider-Man was so bright and he was the neighborhood friendly hero. Blade was the you know the underworld killer. Yeah, you know, it was it was a great movie. I love the Blade films. I'm really looking forward to what Mahershala Ali does with yeah. it. Yeah, all of the Blade films. I completely forgot about that third one. Blade Trinity. Yeah, <laughs> Triple H, mate. And Ryan Reynolds when he played Ryan Reynolds. And Ryan Reynolds and uh, the guy from Prison Break. No, no not, the, not that one. The other one. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic um, Purcell, if you will. <laughs> talking about not reading any source material for uh, this is the other thing. This is the other thing that's so good. Is like. When you go into a movie like Blade and, and someone's like, yeah, it's a comic book. Like, because I didn't grow up with comic books. Mm. Like, I was like, is it? Cool, because I know Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, and those guys. You know, yes. I don't know about Blade Man. And, uh, <laughs> the Blade and eight. <laughs> but then, then to see Hellboy, now Hellboy on on a film poster, you're like, that looks like a comic book. Yes. Not one I've ever heard of. Exactly. Yeah, living here in the UK, in Lincolnshire, where we didn't have, there was no comic book stores. And certainly I didn't have any money to buy comic books when I was growing up. But Hellboy instantly you look at it and you're like, that looks fun. It does look different. It looks unique. And I'm going to tell you now, I can't think of a better marriage between director and source material. It's gothic as fuck. It's dark. Mm. Your main character is a child who actually ages differently because he's younger. So by the time he's played Ron Perlman, it's even stated in the first film, he's actually only a teenager. So he's, he's reluctant. He's hidden from the world. But William Hurt as his dad. Uh, John Hurt. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Yeah, John Hurt. Calling him, you know, calling him dad. Right? It's this really weird dynamic. Adding to it a phenomenal performance by uh, Doug Jones, the first of many in yeah. a partnership that, let's be honest, one of the most profitable partnerships in film, um, who did such a good job that David Hyde Pierce, who voiced uh, the character of Abraham Sapien, took his name off because he was that taken aback by his performance. He was like, this character is yours. When he's invited back to the sequel, uh, he wasn't even invited back to the sequel because uh, Del Toro agreed with him. He's like, no, Doug Jones, this is, this is you. Mm. And great story, Selma Blair. I have watched this film very recently. He does villains so well. And I'm talking about like the Nazi robot. Yeah. The Nazi robot basically is just cogs and sand and he's so villainous. And even Rasputin does a good job. I do you know what? I fucking love this film. This film is good. I like it. Dark, different, edgy, World War II comic book. It is brilliant. I fucking love that. I can't remember the last time I saw it, but I remember... I remember that, you know, when you see him as a kid and you see the kind of like the, the John Hurt exchange and the portal and all that kind of stuff and then he appears and I remember watching that the first time being like, what the fuck am I watching? Like, yeah. <laughs> no idea what's going on. But going back to it, and I've seen this film a handful of times now, It there's there's a lot of layers to enjoy about this movie. On the, it, Visually, it's brilliant. It, it's got that mismatch of characters that shouldn't work very well in loads of ways. He's red and he's blue. And, you know, it, it, <laughs> he loves, so, he's got this weird thing about kittens that like he wants to save all the kittens. He's eating Babe Ruth's and yeah, stuff like that. It's It's got loads of things that clash, but for some reason, they just work really, really well. I think Selma Blair, like you said, is, is brilliant in it. Uh, they also inject in the first one um, a straight character. So you need to see this world because everyone's invested in this. So it's even got the head of the apartment, obviously famous for being John Trevor. Oh, I can't remember his name the guy from Arrested Development the father oh Jeffrey Trumbo Jeffrey Trumbo in a, in a good performance slapstick you know mm. <laughs> trying to get everyone to do the right thing and the straight character of Myers so we enter the world through Myers not even in the sequel because you don't need him now because mm. we know this world so you get rid of him this disposable character fuck off we don't need you we've got Ron Perlman we've got Hellboy we've got a great story um, 
great mythos as well. And yeah. it adds so perfectly. Something, something weirdly that was so different. And I imagine at the time was the closest thing you got to a, um, a comic book story that was, you know, stayed on point. Mm. I think it's cool. It's a cool movie. It's cool. I, I, I would rank it. So we've never done this, but as a comic book films, it's definitely my top 10. I love Hellboy yeah, that much. I, I, I think it's in there. Do you prefer it to Golden Army? No, because Golden Army is in my top three. All right. <laughs> I fucking love Golden Army. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth, we've touched on, is is a film that, um, I God, I remember watching it the first time and oh. being blown away by this film. So it's be- eerie. It was it was horror. It's gothic-y. It's children's fantasy. It it's, blends so many things that shouldn't work as well as they do. It's scarier as well because we obviously, there's a little girl and Doug Jones again playing the uh, yeah, fairy. Fawn. Yeah, he, um, he believes that she's a reincarnated soul of their princess and sets her these tasks. The second task is obviously the scary one with the pale man. But it's, because it's a child fantasy, it reminds me of Labyrinth, but the scale's turned up to 11. Mm. <laughs> like, isn't it? It's such a great story. Acted brilliantly. It's a film that I refuse to watch. You need to watch it subtitled. Yeah. It's, the performances are fantastic. And there is a human character called Vidal, the stepfather. Might be the biggest prick in the world. <laughs> I fucking hate him. Don't you think as well, like in, in a weird world of like, you could easily convince yourself that Rufus Sewell played him. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Because it <laughs> just looks like he would have played that role. <laughs> Which is going to come up later. Um, yeah, I, I love this film. I thought it was brilliant. I, the, the timing of it, you know, the, the 1944 kind of backdrop, the horrors of the real world versus the horrors of the fantasy world that are, that are happening simultaneously. I love all those growing up, all those stories as well about kids discovering things in, you know, back gardens and mm-hmm. wardrobes and grandfather clocks and all that kind of stuff. There was, as a kid, they were the books that I loved and the TV shows that I loved. You know, um, and this was like a grown-up version of that stuff. Yeah. And so I lapped it up. I think it's made. I think it's probably I've, my favorite. I've one. got it down as your favorite. Yeah. I, I and, and I'm the exact same. I've probably seen it three times, and I will not rush back to watch it because it, every time it's been just perfect. Yeah. So um, it's it's a weird film that you'd want to rewatch again, <laughs> like like quickly. Oh, I can't wait to watch that again. <laughs> I want to be terrified. Yeah, but sometimes it's things like you want to watch the effects or you want to watch, is it as scary as I remember? And, you know, did it grasp me as much as it did, you know, the first time around? Uh, next was Golden Army. The Golden Army is is, 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 is even better. It's it's dialed up and it introduces characters like death. And I'd be honest, the, is, so this is a different story. They didn't take this from the comic books. They used the law and created their own, which I think is brilliant. And the main villain in this, uh, Prince Noel, is the same guy who played the original Reaper vampire in Blade 2. Luke Goss. Luke Goss. And I'm convinced in this film for the longest time it was Tom Cruise. Yeah. The, the, I, I genuinely that, yeah. thought, I was like, no, that's Tom yeah. Cruise. And for the longest time I thought I was Tom Cruise. Like, I'm not joking, like three years. And I even researched, it was Luke Goss. I was like, no, someone's taking a piss. It was definitely Tom Cruise. In a, uh, so everything about the world that you love is opened up. It introduces new character like a character made up of plasma, just just gas, if you will. I think he's voiced by the guy who created Family Guy. Seth MacFarlane, yeah. Seth MacFarlane. And it's everything, again, that you've added is brilliant. It, it feels like, it feels like the first movie was like, right, Del Toro, you can, you can, you can, you can inject a load of you into it. And then the second movie, they were like, just put all of you into just it. Just all of you Because it, it is, it is Del Toro dialed up, mm-hmm. the second one. It just, it's even like, like the, 
So when you watch Pan's Labyrinth and then you watch all of his films, there, there is a common theme and it's the characters, the prosthetics that build up. Like Death appears in this to save um, Hellboy. But it looks so much like a mixture of the fawn. Mm. And obviously Abe Simpson in this looks exactly what, what is it called? The fish man in Shape of Water. Yeah, so the amphibian he, man. Amphibian man. So you've always got these prosthetics that are always inspired by each other. They create weirdly in its own little head. Yeah. A shared universe of 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 characters like the Pale Man. We're talking about him in Pan's Labyrinth. It's so scary that I could see him showing up in this film mm. <laughs> because I'm not joking. Pale the Pale Man t- terrifies the piss out of me. I like the amphibian like man. You know, whether it be Abe or whether it be Shape of Water, because that that is like a nod to such a great era of yes, like you know, fifties uh, and Creature early sixties. Yeah, 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 those creature feature movies where. It was a man in a suit or a woman in a suit. And, um, you know, and it relied heavily on imagination and prosthetics and good lighting. Um, but, it, you know, they are the forefront. They're the pioneers of why we have the films that we have today. They were the ones that boldly went first and gave it a go. And now we can laugh at how silly it was. But actually, fucking hell, they, 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 they're just... What a time to work in a makeup department. Yeah. You know, when your job is to go and create a monster and make that monster look realistic. Are you imagine it's fun. Just like he's like, create me death. And yeah. you're like, yes, create me a, a create me a creature that feeds on children. <laughs> it's like the is it Rick Baker? Like I've always I've always wanted to buy his um he released a book, I think it was two years ago, three years ago. It's pre-pandemic, so maybe three years ago. Basically just going through his career and all the prosthetics he's worked on, all the That's monsters he's created. Cool and then when I went to go buy it, it was like 150 quid. Yeah. That's the problem I always find with movie books because I wanted to get that one about the history of the changing movie posters and that was like £120. I was like, I wish I loved movie posters that much. Yeah. <laughs> um, if we're going to move on then, because uh, I'm just, just conscious of time, um, where are we going next, James? Oh, no. We're going we're going to Idris Elba. <laughs> that is easy, isn't it? It's Pacific Rim next. Everyone's got a death note. And I'm just saying here, and this is going to cause a bit of fan, fan backlash, Idris Elba is not the actor we want him to be. He's he is in Luther. He is a good actor, but he suffers from Rebel Wilson disease and he picks on the big screen. Bad films. Yeah. And, I'll, and I don't think Charlie Hunnam is as great as everyone makes out, hence why Charlie Hunnam's not in films at the, <laughs> at the minute. And again, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying it was bad. Yeah, I mean, I like Del Toro that he brings in actors that, uh, quite a lot of the time British actors that are maybe less known you know we had Cat from Red Dwarf in Blade 2 that was, that was just quite the casting wasn't it yeah and this this you know Charlie Hunnam is, is one thing Idris Elba obviously uh, you know was already in stuff so, so, so Charlie from always something in Philadelphia in this one, Charlie Day is in it Charlie yeah. Day is in it's it Dr. Newton it's, it's I just don't think it worked and do you know what the problem is people watching this film and this film only exists because they wanted to see the film with Godzilla and Kong because wasn't all three properties owned by the same movie studio so the big talk was it's going to be Kaiju's versus Kong versus Godzilla versus yeah. Pacific Rim and people were watching the film and that's all they wanted and all I wanted was that film to end because I thought oh, shit I just, I rewatched it this week because it's the one I, I the one I think I've seen once and I couldn't really remember if I liked it or not. I remember the I remember more the second one, which I think he wrote, but he didn't direct. Mm. Um, so Boyega, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah John Boyega, isn't it? Yeah. So I thought I'll go back to watch this because it's on um, it's on that TV, Sky Cinema. So I went back and watched it. Uh, yeah, it is it is pretty it is pretty bad. It's the, 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 some of the effects look great in it. Yeah, and it does that thing where like if if um. It, it, you know, it does make the monsters, uh, sorry, the cars you feel massive and the monsters feel massive. So when they're fighting, they do feel like these giant titans going at each other. Um, 
but it's just a lot of the things that are happening inside the 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 Kaju that I just couldn't, you know, Charlie Hunnam just. Well, it's weird. It's, I think story wise, it's why do you have to be, you have to be in perfect sync, otherwise it, otherwise the what do they call it? Rocket boy. It's got a name anyway. It's like, you need to be in perfect sync with your partner. I think it's called the, the, the cranium handshake or something. But then you just think, well, why don't you just like, I can, I can do a video game on a joypad. <laughs> just get me a joystick. Yeah. <laughs> just surely there's easier ways. <laughs> why do I have to be in perfect sync with some other number? Isn't it easier if I can control it with one person and a keyboard? <laughs> w for walk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It also had um, Robert Kaczynski in it, who, uh, if anyone watched EastEnders growing up, I'm pretty certain he was in EastEnders, <laughs> talking about... Um, Fucking hell. You know, people that people that have come... Yeah, he played Sean Slater. Jesus <laughs> Christ. And when, it, when it popped up, I was like, oh, he was in EastEnders. I mean, he's been in a novel. He was in like... Uh, no, it doesn't matter. He'll only be around for right, EastEnders. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he was in a Marvel movie recently, but all right, EastEnders. Was he? Yeah, he was in the, the Captain Marvel. Oh, was it? Mm. Oh, I say it was. I did. Do you know what? I had the option of watching uh, Morbius the other day. But watched uh, what scene year instead. <laughs> <laughs> you, have you seen the deleted scene of um, the end of Blade post credit scene that they didn't put in the cinema where Morbius is in it? No. So there's a, it's on YouTube. So there's a scene that end, that movie ends with him on a rooftop, doesn't it? And he's like, I think the original ended. He goes to Moscow. In the, yeah, in the that's what, yeah, that's what that's what that's one they had to take the jizz away from. <laughs> yeah. So um, in in this uh, in the original one, they're on a rooftop, and then one of the people he says, "Oh, a friend of yours," and he looks across to the the rooftop adjoint, and there's a vampire in the daylight, and it's Morbius. Oh, and they just never went anywhere with <laughs> and, it. And even then, they were like, "No, stay away." It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> box office boys and stay the fuck away. Pacific Rim, I think. Do you know what? It's it's the same as Godzilla and Kong. Like if you're paying your money or investing your time because you want to see giant monsters fighting each other, then it's going to give you that. Yeah. But it's just wrapped in so much. Um, oh shit. Yeah. A lot of rubbish. <laughs> like I could do without any backstory to be fair. Yeah. But I don't, I still don't understand when you watch Kong and Godzilla versus Kong, why I'm supposed to care about the family. They literally, Bobby, uh, Billy Bobby Brown. Is Billy it, Bobby Brown. Yeah. It's literally just there to get, I still don't get it. It's like, no, I want more fighting. Yeah. But luckily, we're about to take an upgrade. We, everyone's got a death note, mate. Everyone's got a bad film. And even like you said, it wasn't made for the artistic, was it? It was made to see things smash each other. It was there, basically, to help set up a shared universe. It's time to get back to what you do best, Del Toro. Uh, well, after the TV series, uh, The Strain, they did Crimson Peak. Oh, I haven't seen that. Crimson <laughs> Peak, that's the, um, what's it, the uh, Loki, what's his name? Tom Hiddleston. I don't, yeah, this is one I haven't seen. This is one I was trying to find. Jessica Chastain's in it um, and played Alice, Mia. Djokovic. Not Mila Djokovic. No, played Alice in Wonderland. Oh, sorry. Yeah, different Alice. So uh, <laughs> Alice in Wonderland, Alice. Oh. Uh, Mia Wozakowski. Yeah, that's her. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I watched this a few. Oh, and Charlie Holland's in it as well. Bless him. <clears throat> I, I did watch this actually a couple of years back because I, I wanted to see. I want to see the dark horror. I, I like movies like, what was that woman in black? The Daniel Radcliffe one, mm. which is actually genuinely quite terrifying. That film, quite jumpy. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, it's Del Toro. And it's, you know, it's a Gothic horror kind of thing. Um, it's all right. Actually. It's not, it's not the, Tom Hiddleston does, does the best he can, I think with it, with the role that he's given. Mm. Um, but it's not, uh, it, it's not my top, it's not my top one, James, you know, Crimson P, but it is on Netflix. I think it what is. is. It? Oh, <laughs> um, here it comes. Shape of Water. Oscar nominated. Seen as his best. F- stellar cast. And when you do this, when you see this film, 
you'd be incorrect in thinking that Michael Shannon's a stand-up performance because I believe he was one that was nominated. I think he won for this one, didn't he? Mm, to me. No, Shannon didn't. I don't think he won uh, it. To me. Richard Jenkins. R- yeah. Richard Jenkins. And do you know what? The supporting cast is phenomenal. Great story that during the set is time, deals with homophobia, belonging, the Cold War, Michael Shannon pulling off his own dead fingers, mm. giving speeches, being genuinely horrified. So I believe the film opens with a narration that talks about the horror, the monster. And you, even though he's in the audience, we're not talking about the amphibious man. We're talking about Michael Shannon, mm. the bastard. Rick Strickland. It is such a great, powerful performance offset with the main character who is mute. Sally Hawkins. Sally Hawkins is... Lisa Esposito. So what we've mentioned is we've been talking about Doug Bradley is one of the best performers with his body because they stick him in like, fair say about five inches of prosthetics, makeup. Mm. He has to act a certain way. He has to move his body a certain way. He tells you a story. What you have in this film is you have the absence, your two main characters. You have the love story. They don't talk. The talking's done for them. They use sign language to communicate. Your main, the main person who speaks the most is the neighbour who's got their own stuff going on. And then you've got Michael Shannon in, in probably Shannon's, oh no, I don't know actually. But, but it, it's up there with Shannon's. It's up great. there with Shannon's. It is a fantastic story that's told without words. It is, that's something that we forget about. Mm. It's in, are the scenes a bit cheesy when somehow they flood an entire bathroom? It's like, no bathrooms that watertight. <laughs> no bathrooms that watertight. I, I love it though. I, I think visually it's stunning. I, like I say, I like the nods to the 50s stuff. It, there's a video game I loved growing up called Biohazards and it just screams that kind of, it's got that like neon light feel to it, but a 50s noir feel. Um, I think, yeah, every performance in it's great. Shannon is incredible. Richard Jenkins is great. Oh, Tony Spencer's awesome. great. Sandy yeah, everyone is great in this. Brings a raid game. It's paced really well. It's got violence in it that feels warranted, you know, so at the end it does get a little bit bloody between two of the characters, but it feels justified. The I think one of the scenes that will stand out for me forever is when um, he's interrogating Spencer, Octavia Spencer, in her house. Mm. He's so tense. It's like any, you're watching a film and anything could happen. Any decision that the character makes, you could believe. Shoot them all. Yeah. Leave. It's the greatest breakout uh, movie since Free Willy as well. It's just, it's up there. It's just <laughs> top tier. I love this film. I went to cinema to watch it. It's one of the first films I went to the cinema to watch on my own. Yeah. But, yeah. So back in 2017, I, I don't think I'd actually really been to the cinema on my Todd. And now I will easily go because this is, this, this, this was like the catalyst for it. I was like, I could have missed that great movie on the big screen. I'm just saying now though, if you don't see the ending come, then with the, Marks, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> bigger, bigger, bigger nod than what? <laughs> it actually makes more sense in this film. <laughs> but it, ha- yeah, it has the fantasy elements to it, you know, like uh, Pan's Labyrinth. It has the, the horror, it has the nods to, you know, the creature feature uh, movies that, that are just so brilliant and paved the way for, for films like this to then come in and, and do what they do. The relationship as well between Richard Jenkins and Sally Hawkins, as you was mentioning, is so adorable mm-hmm. and genuine and there's great chemistry. It's a perfectly cast movie as well. I, I think um, yeah, it's a good Shape show. of Water, Pan's Labyrinth. I don't. I'm not really bothered which one's my top favorite because they're both incredible. I'm with you. I would say they're his best work, but they're not my favorite. So um, after that, in terms of his directing, so this is like a bad stage now as well, where he was set up to do two things. He was set up to direct a video game, 
called the Silent Hill, the new one, the PT. It's got mm. that demo that came out with Norman Regis and the original creator of Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. Which got shit canned. So we never got that. And he was also signed on to do The Hobbit. So we missed that. And I just think that would have been mm. so cool. Different spin on things. So a bad stage here where I feel like we missed out on two massive projects. That would have been awesome. Yeah. I mean, still took his, his obviously his writing for, for Hobbit. Um, but then, yeah, Nightmare Alley is his next directing after that. After doing, obviously, TV shows, so The Strain, um, Troll Hunters. Um, but yeah, Nightmare Alley, which I talked about a few weeks ago. Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it. Oh, it's really, it's on Disney. Yeah, I've lost access to Oh, Disney, of course you have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then next up, Pinocchio. So what is your favourite? Are we saying best or favourite? Because I've got two answers. Oh, we've got time. If it's best... I'm with you. I can't distinguish between Pan's Labyrinth and I cannot distinguish between Shape of Water. They are phenomenal. Mm. If I had to pick one, I would probably say that I was always knew what I was going to get with Michael Shannon. Yeah, yeah. So maybe Shape of Water has a lot of a lot going for me that I didn't. But if we look at Pan's Labyrinth, the idea that Doug Jones didn't even speak Spanish and had to teach himself whilst he was learning it. And apparently um, they were going, he used a famous Spanish actor. He used his speech man. So that's, so he was even... The extra level, it's a subtitled film. It's kind of like a fairy tale I don't know, mm. even if it's a fairy tale. So if I were to put them up against each other in a crazy world where I don't know why I would because they're both phenomenal films, I would say Pan's Labyrinth because it has less going for it, but it still drew me in. Both films captivated me, but I feel like Shape of Water was always going to captivate me. Mm. Whereas Pan's Labyrinth, it, it got me well played. But I can't deny in a world where we talk about nothing but superhero films and comic book films and Batman being remade 79 billion times. I care about Hellboy, who I don't think is at the top of anyone's list. Yeah. The world they created, I'm much more interested than Gotham City or Metropolis or fucking New York. I want to live in that world. And this is why I think you hate the David Harbour Hellboy one so much. Because yeah, you probably. think the Hellboy, because the Harbour one's not good. I'm not going to say it's good. Oh, shit. But, but it's not terrible. Oh, it's like, terrible. I, there are some scenes, like the the, tr- the troll scene is brilliant. Yeah. And I'll Even be honest. broken clocks right twice a day. So just because you've got one, two good things, you're still a shit film. No, no, there are there are a few other elements to it. Like yeah. the ends when like hell does break loose. I'm like, fucking show me that film. That's cool. But then at the same time, you've got fucking... Luke Shane coming out of someone's ass. Yeah, it looks like worm man. He's wild, isn't it? That whole worm thing's weird. Yeah, it's bullshit. But there, there was there was there were some elements to the Hellboy movie that I, I didn't think it was I dug it wrong. I still think it was a bad movie, but it had it what it had some things that were like, oh all right. But I think because you love Hellboy so much, you went hard on hating that I movie. I did really hate that film. I remember because the film that I reviewed that for, the episode was the film that we got tattooed about. Yeah. And I really hated that film. It's the only thing I remember was like coming out of that tattoo parlor. Spitting feathers. Well, well, like, I thought about this the other day. We did a podcast where I was like, where we was getting tattooed while podcasting. Yeah, no one gave a shit. And, it, and, it, and do you know what? And I, and I look at I look at all the other podcasts. I think no one went there, did they? <laughs> <laughs> I have to look at that tattoo every day. <laughs> uh, the things we do, yeah, for you, the listeners. But won't edit it for episode. Won't, won't take out any, any inaccuracy or dub over like when my phone makes a noise. None of that. But I'll get tattooed during the show. <laughs> So, so for me, best work, Pan's Labyrinth, but my favourite, I can't say, and I don't distinguish, I think they're both Yeah, great. Hellboys, yeah. Go Hellboys. Fair enough, yeah, Delta, I'm looking forward to Pinocchio, I'm looking forward to anything the man does, he will get me in a cinema. As, I know this is not the conversation for now, but on on your favourite act, your favourite directors, where does he stand? Because for world building, I'm going to say he's probably my top. I do love the Coen brothers, but I'm more, if they gave them both the script, I'd be more interested in what Del Toro yeah. did with the world. Yeah, I think I think Del Toro is up there with 
um, someone at the moment like Jordan Peele for me. And, good. and I think Coen Brothers, and they've been doing it longer, but they are safe hands that you know that when you go into them films, they're going to give you, it's going to, it's going to be a genre maybe you know, but it's going to be a story that you don't. And there's going to be enough twist turns or, or, you know, elements to make that movie enjoyable that you haven't seen that um, I think Del Toro is in there. He's certainly in the top 10. There's a lot of films that I wish he had directed as well. Like yeah. I would have wanted to have seen his version of certain films. Frankenstein. Frankenstein's one. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, in, but yeah, I, I, I say top 10. I think, um, and it just goes to show, doesn't it, the directors in particular that have the smaller quantity, uh, the, the quality filmographies. Um, you know, I like Wes Anderson for that same reason. Doesn't have, I think probably much on par with Del Toro in terms of how many films he's put out. Mm. Um, you know, instantly recognisable. The moment you sit down, you're like, oh, I'm watching a Del Toro film. You just know it, you know. Can't put your finger on exactly what it is. It's the palette. It's the... Uh, so you usually see Doug Jones as the Doug, credits. Yeah, normally, normally a lanky six foot something man. Oh, it's Del Toro. Yeah, he's, he's up there. He's up there. Definitely. Oh, Del Toro, I love you. <laughs> I've got two more movies to talk about. You got any? I've got two, but they're, they're pretty short. Um, I'll, I'll hit you with one first now, so yeah. you can rest the old larynx. This is a documentary. And the reason why I don't think you should watch it is because it's against... An airplane company. So basically, this is on Netflix. It's called Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. Uh, the documentary examines the Boeing company and their role in the crashes of two airliners, killing a combined number of 346 people. The documentary takes a historical approach, uh, showing standards uh, when the company started and what they were known for, and how they changed over the years, and show how the company started to value monetary gain over passenger safety. Now, what you're saying is there is, oh, James, you're an idiot. Of course, every company talks about monetary value what is going to terrify the shit out of you is these aren't like 20 years ago. These are within like the last 10 years, these crashes. They added something to a plane that they needed to get out to beat a competitor and they put something on that plane that was designed to help them. But because they've made promises to stockholders and everything, they, they couldn't retrain pilots. So pilots were flying planes with this, this computer system mm. that basically they knew nothing about and it caused two plane crashes. And it's terrifying that People didn't go to fucking jail. Mm. It's a film, it's a documentary that's well told. It's about an hour and a half long. Will infuriate you as a person. You'll watch this and you'll think, that's ridiculous because a plane company, you know, planes and cars, they need to put, yes, they're a company, they need to make monetary gain. They need to make money so they can create more. They put people's lives at risk yeah. and they knew that and they didn't tell pilots and people died in situations where they didn't have to. It's, it'll make you angry, it'll scare you, it'll upset you. And I think that's kind of a job of a documentary. Did you? Yeah, it's to get under your skin a bit, isn't and it, it? And it and it worked. Did you see Sully, the Tom Hanks movie I, with Aaron Eckhart? I, I did. Yeah. So that was very much down that line because that that film isn't about the heroicness of saving a, a you know a passenger full plane and crash landing on the Hudson. Yeah. It's about the lawyers going after him afterwards because they're basically saying you know the fact that one of our planes crashed could cause our stakeholders to leave and cripple our business, bankrupt our business. Mm. And it was really interesting that when I watched that movie, I was like, oh, we're going, we're going down this route. Like, I thought it was going to be around the, the actual the, event. The heroics yeah. there, yeah. But then you realise that that actually happened in, like, the first six minutes of the plane taking off. So, obviously, you can't drag that film out for, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, for that amount of time. But yeah, that's, that's always fine, weird. And I've also noticed that we've, since Top Gun, I've done aviation for, like, three weeks straight now. So, next week, boats. I might do Speed 2. Speed 2. There you go. Um, what's your, uh, what was that called again? 
That was called a uh, sorry, downfall the case against Boeing. So Boeing obviously make the planes yeah. which they then sell to aircrafts. And I know that you don't always like flying. So if it's a Boeing, mate, uh, don't go. I've, I've got a flight in a few weeks. Um, oh, sorry. That's right. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that then. <laughs> I, I do realise as well, um, the, uh, I don't know what I was going to say. That's on Netflix, sorry. It is on Netflix. But also what, what really boils your skin as well when you watch it is, the lawyers go straight into effect. They don't blame Boeing because Boeing is an American company. And one of the things they say is an American pilot wouldn't have happened to because it happens in Indonesia and Africa, I think. Mm. But, but now you know what you know. It's just like, maybe you shouldn't have put the system on the fucking plane, you twat. <laughs> but again, no one ends up in jail. And like the main villain, the CEO at the end, he's like, uh, he was forced to stand down. Yeah. We've got like 600 million in stock options. So in reality, got to go home, bed his beautiful wife and spend a fuck ton of money. I'm going to talk about uh, 2021's Candyman. Have you seen it? I've not, but I've wanted to. Yeah, so the, the film's directed by Nia DaCosta. It stars uh, Yahar Abdul-Mateen, who we're a big fan of on this podcast. It's got um, Tiona Paris in it. Um, it's an official sequel to the early 90s horror. So like with the Halloween that we started the episode on, you know, it's basically saying, forget all the sequels. This is the sequel to the 92 Tony Todd's Candyman movie. Yeah, which is a story written by the writer Clive of... Clive Barker. Clive Barker. Which is also what this is written on, because he wrote four, five, five of those... Oh, that's cool. What are they called? The Bloodlust books or whatever. Yeah, the, the novellas, aren't they? They're not actual novels. Though. Yeah, so this is based on the fifth one. So the first one was called Forbidden. That's what Candyman was set on. Yes, they've been loved with the plantation owner's yeah. wife and no daughter and an owner. Yeah, and then this is the the fifth one. So um, it's the official sequel. So it follows a struggling artist who was once great, once renowned, hasn't had his follow-up. Everyone's waiting for it. When's the next masterpiece going to come? Um, who becomes obsessed with a housing project, which he visits to get inspiration for his next artistic piece, um, which is in Chicago. And the housing project was a victim to a ghost story that terrorized the community. He then gets wrapped up in it. The locals that he bumps into, those that were around at the time, kind of starts to uh, learn about the urban legend that is Candyman. And he kind of reimagined, he starts off as a reimagining. And like, I've, you know, it, I've only said it next. The film, you know, does sell the poster a, a sequel. But hmm. I will say, an hour into this movie, you might not think it's a sequel and it's a, it's a reboot because they don't really talk about Tony Todd or any of that kind of early 90s stuff. You know, it starts off as an urban legend. They kind of recreate who the Candyman is as well. It's the you know, it's this local who um he gives sweets out to kids and and um a, a white girl takes one of the sweets and it had a razor blade in it, and now the police are hunting him. It's the same time that there's uh, there's been some murders, so they link the two together. He's then beaten Murder candy must be him. <laughs> well, more I'm the, the yeah, yeah, and and he's then uh brutally murdered by the police when they go to arrest him and then this urban legend happens. So first you're thinking, oh it's a, it's a complete reboot, but by the end of the movie, and it, no spoiler, it does start to say actually is the Candyman someone that generationally can change. Ah. So actually this is a continuation from the 92 film. It's stylish, I will say that. It's can you remember a movie, Velvet Buzzsaw? The Jay Gyllenhaal, the Jay Gyllenhaal one. The art one. Yeah. yeah. So that was a bad movie. Yeah. But it had that like, because it was about the art world, it had that like stylish it approach to it. Yeah, something about it that could have been something more. Yeah. And so this is very similar and on the nose of that, it's like, it's in the art world. So you get this kind of like, you know, the, the art critic, you get the friends of the artists, they're all quite eccentric, you know, and, and um, very woke and very modern and, you know, and... So it is stylish and it, it, it's, it's less slasher drama, 
and it, it has a very strong social narrative in it that it pushes to the forefront. And what's really weird about watching it, and it's a bold choice, and I, and I don't know whether Nia DaCosta, who directed the movie, is right or wrong for this. I, I did quite enjoy Candyman. It's not great. Um, it's, it's just a film. You know, mm. there's some things I'll change about it. There's some things that I thought were really good about it. But what it definitely does do is it pushes the social narrative really to the front, really to the front, and then puts away the supernatural you oh, know, like hook, hook killer to the background a little bit. Very early on, like if you remember the original Tony Todd movie, um, you know, I can't remember the uh, the character's name in it, but she was blacking out. And when she was waking up, there's all these deaths. And you were watching it going like, is she doing it? Is she like, is she got an alter ego? Is it, you know, is it Moon Knight? You know, it's that <laughs> kind of thing. And so you were guessing, questioning, thinking about it. You go back and rewatch it. You rewatch it two or three times. You see different things. And it was, it was something that developed and, and unraveled. This very quickly is like, yeah, no, hook killer guy, ghost thing. Yeah, he's around. Yeah, you, you can't see him. He's in, you see him in reflections. He hovers and kills people. Right, anyway, social narrative. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, and, it, and, that, and it's produced by Jordan Peele. So, it, you know, when it, it, and I like that. And, and I, 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 I'm not going to say that that was a criticism about it, but that did make the film not scary. Um, you know, and it was creepy, but not, there, there was no tension like, like I was saying about Halloween kills and everything. It's, an, it's kind of just over 90 minutes, so it doesn't outstay its welcome neither. So it's quite a tightly packaged movie. The, I think the performances are pretty good as well. Like Yaham uh, Abdul-Mantin is, is, is great. And Tiona Paris, they're the two love interests in it. By the end of it, I just wanted to go back and watch the 92 movie. Mm, it, does end, it does end on a way where I was like, oh, I kind of want to watch the original now. Like that, I, I would have been better with just watching the original. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah, it's a slow burner as well. Now there's a, there's a, there's a what, what I really do like is there's a um, film critic or reviewer, uh, Jeremy Jans, and he, he sums it up brilliantly. And, and I'm going to quote him on this because I thought actually that's exactly what I'm trying to find is that, ironically the movie is about an artist and the point about art is that a picture paints a thousand words and you shouldn't have to explain art <laughs> and this movie made a hell of a big deal about explaining what it was trying to tell you and you don't have to figure any of it out so you leave it going like oh i get i get what that film was trying to tell me you know and, 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 with, the, with the with the narrative the social narrative it was trying to you know about, told me everything I yeah need to know. And, and i thought that actually sums it up brilliantly is is in the context of this artist and actually what the film's done is spoonfed me some things <laughs> For everyone who has seen it, it's weird because there is one scene in the middle of the movie that really just feels out of it. It's a, a, a massacre scene in a bathroom, hmm. which just feels out of nowhere. You know what I mean? Like, so all of this is kind of like, um, you know, it, it plays out in the world of this artist and his friends and, you know, the people that he knows. And then just randomly, there's just, it's like Candy Mom's just like, I'm just going to go kill a load of kids <laughs> just, just for a scene. You know, I'm just, and, and I haven't, know, I haven't, I haven't hit my quota yet. Yeah, so yeah, see it later. Just feel like it's like these, and, and I, and I get it. It's because, you know, they awaken the urban legend. And so these kids go to a bathroom in a school and they, um, you know, they say it in front of the mirror five times and everything, but it just feels really out of place. It's like, oh, we need five minutes to kill, you know, oh, five people just get slayed in this bathroom. Um, so yeah, it's worth a watch. It's not, but I wouldn't go into it going like, watch this horror movie. I'd go into this with saying just, it's it's quite a stylistic hmm. 90 minute film that will make you want to watch the 92 film more than anything. Yeah. But it, was, it wasn't bad by any standards. Produced by John Peel. Well, yeah. I was see Maverick the other week. They had a trailer for Nope. Oh, this, I've this seen the one. teaser one. Yeah. I'm all about that. I am very interested in it because he, he seems to be doing something different ways. And every film he makes, he's doing something different. But the, the, uh, have you seen the trailer for Mission Impossible as well? I have, again, for Maverick, but I'll be honest, I, I, 
I don't even know what number they're on now. I love the fact they don't number them now. Yeah, because, I think it's like seven now. It, it, to me, that's ridiculous. Because it was never... Is, is it supposed to be... Is it a franchise that goes on forever? Well, he's, he's the American James Bond, isn't it? I, 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 I'll be honest, I'm not a fan. But then again, as... as so I said this last week, I don't think he's got chemistry with a lot of people. And I can't think of anyone he's got chemistry with in Mission Impossible. Eh, not for me. I'll probably watch it, though. Yeah, I'm all about the stunts. Yeah, it, so. you are. So you said... Uh-oh. So you said that it was a, Candyman was a bit different? Mm. Well, what about the opposite? What about something that's exactly the same? Now, in true, true, sorry, you're in my seat style, this film comes out, prob- by the time you've heard this, this film will no longer be on Netflix. Has some time to kill. Will Smith's been in the newspapers a bit lately. <laughs> been up to much. Mine Lawrence hasn't. Oh, dear. Bad Boys for Life. Directed by Adil and Bilal, starring Will Smith, Mine Lawrence, and Vanessa Hudgens. Mike Lowry and Marcus Burnett investigate a string of murders tied to Lowry's troubled past with Mike in the hospital. So spoilers, something that happens to Will Smith's character early on. Marcus does a deal with God, retires, and the Mount and the Miami Police Department reinvents itself because it starts doing fucking police work correctly. They're no longer <laughs> about kicking in doors and smashing things. However, Mike wakes up angry after revenge, wants to know who tried to kill him as a string of murders take out all these people. Obviously, it's related to one case. Mike and Marcus re-establish themselves in the Miami PD and start trying to... So basically, it's a fish-out-water com- fish now because they've... For separate reasons, they've left the police. They've come back in. It's all about due diligence now, getting the right things. They've got new characters in. The new recruits. I remember the, new the trailer recruits. played on that yes. massively. So they've got new recruits now. So how do the bad boys fit into the new modern world of policing? I think it's the wrong time for this sort of film, to be honest. Um, it's tonally weird... And I'm going to say something now, mate, that I never thought these words would come out of my mouth. Bad Boys 3 misses Michael Bay. (laughs) I don't get me wrong, it's not a bad film. It's the weaker of the three. I don't know how you stand on Bad Boys. I think Bad Boys... They're entertaining. They are entertaining. They got you know what? I say what you will about Martin Lawrence. In those films, he's pretty good. I like Martin Lawrence. I I, I think he had his time. He hasn't done anything decent for a while. Um, This film's okay. It's missing it though. The mm. the one liners are gone. The joke being that they're a bit too old. It's up there with Lethal Weapon and Danny Glover. It's like I'm too old for it. Well, he was retiring in the first one. It's about a fourth one. In this one, mine I was probably yeah. You should probably retire. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same. The same jokes. The same. The same. I tell you what, there is one joke really early on that fucking landed it for me. And I was like, that's funny. You know the shot that you aspire in all bad boys. Something it's low and it's coming around, they're getting out of the car. We see Will Smith get out of the car and he puts his jacket on, he's looking suave. Martin Lawrence gets out of the car and the car hits a hydrant. <laughs> the door hits a hydrant. Fucking, I'm in. Unfortunately, it peaked. Yeah. <laughs> Bad boys for life. I'm done for life. You would have thought that would be the fourth movie, wouldn't you? Yeah. For life. For Just life. Just the number four. Because the fourth one is in pre-production. And I don't know if it's going to happen now. It shouldn't be. It, it, it's fine. But again, like all things, it's It's over. True Detective season five, mate, them two. Why would you want? Turn into a TV show. Back in, I'd watch that. (laughs) (laughs) But Bad Boys 5 is fine. I don't know why I told you about this because you can't watch it because it's out on Netflix now. So, sorry. Unless someone's going to rush and go buy it on DVD. (laughs) You don't. (laughs) Uh, We've had some negativity. I thought this episode was going to be all All positive positive because it's about the amazing career that is uh, Del Toro. Toro. Um, We've hit some snags along the way. We've talked about Halloween Kills. We've talked about uh, the the change-up. Obviously, now we've just talked about... um, Bad Boys for Life. Bad Boys for Life. So I'm going to end on not just a high, Mm. but on a film that I think is 
is effortlessly brilliant. Oh, have you seen saying. The Father? I've seen half of The Father. I, I would I would say The Father, in recent memory, is one of the best films I've seen. Hit me. It is so. If you haven't seen it, it came out in 2020. It came out in the pandemic, so it didn't really find its audience. It did break even at the box office, made for six billion, six million, made like twenty eight million at the box office and stuff. But it's now on Amazon. Great cast list. Eh? Yeah, it's Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman, Imogen Poots, Rufus Sewell, Olivia Williams, and Mark Gattis. Uh, Anthony Hopkins went on to win the Oscar for it. Yeah, he got slagged off. Got being slagged off for yeah for for because he was eighty two years old <laughs> in a different country. <laughs> he was asleep. The yeah. fucker. And he accepted the award the the next morning. Um. It also, I think, won for best screenplay. I think I it was so, yeah. um, to the films directed by Florian Zeller, who wrote the play that it's based off. Wrote the screenplay for this. It has also been adapted into another film. Um, I think a French speaking. It comes from a French speaking play um, in 2016. I think it was. So it's it's something that is out there, and it, this story is developed. I didn't know about. it. I haven't seen the stage play or anything like that. So I went to this completely cold. Anthony Hopkins plays Anthony. It's good. He's there. <laughs> He's like, oh, I know this guy. Um, he's a man in his 80s living in his London apartment. Very nice apartment. Mm. Um, dealing with the day-to-day consequences of dementia. And his caring daughter, Anne, played by Olivia Coleman, wants him to have a carer, a live-in carer, or at least someone that's a, a presence at the apartment. Um, but as Anthony's health deteriorates, time becomes unstuck and becomes unraveled. And he starts to get very confused about faces and names and the day and those kind of things. So on the one hand, it's a very real and frightening look at dementia, but artistically, and I imagine seeing this on the stage would have been incredible, but visually they do some brilliant things with this film that you as an audience member, I can only describe it as you are trying, you would never you know, uh, be able to say what living with dementia is like, you know, obviously. Um, but the film does a, does a really clever thing of disorientating you as much as Anthony. So you are as confused, obviously on a completely different level as someone living with dementia, but you know, so he will wake up and go to a room that doesn't look the same as the room that he was in, in the scene before, because one of the side effects of dementia is forgetting layouts of rooms or colors of walls or that kind of thing. People's faces will change. So a character will come into a scene that isn't the character. It's not Olivia Coleman anymore. You know, it, it's Olivia Williams comes into a scene and it's his daughter and he's saying, you're not my daughter. Cause again, another trade dementia is forgetting facial, you know, what people look like. So it plays with the boundaries of, you know, it's, it, it's just such a good film. Um, that by the end of it, it is it, halfway through. I was like, this is a bit confusing, but I know it's going to tell me the end. It's going to wrap it up neatly. And he's going to kind of reveal its hand and be like, well, that's what you were watching this whole time. These were the timelines you're supposed to be following. And it does it in such a beautiful way, in a crushing way, um, that you can tell Alfred Hopkins won the Oscar for the final scene of this movie. Like, mm. it is brilliant. He is such a gentleman as well that when interviewed about it, he's like, oh, it was effortless. Because when you star alongside Olivia Coleman, it's effortless. I think she's his equal as well. Oh, she's so good in this. She's she, so good. I, I love the fact that she's famous in this country a few years ago for being in Peep Show and mm. for being a comedy... Hot s- Fuzz. Hot Fuzz, you know, she was a comedy side character. She wasn't the main character. Yeah. And then she was just like, no, no you know what, I'm going to be the biggest thing in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, obviously winning Oscars for the favourite, you know. But yeah, so you get these two storylines there. You get obviously the how difficult and heartbreaking it is to 
live with the disease, but also to see your parent with that disease. You know, it's great. You know, it's one of the films where he thinks she's trying to take the flat off him and he goes through different personalities. Sometimes he's foggy and, you know, he, he doesn't understand things. Other times he's charming. Then he's utterly ruthless, you know, and it's not him talking, it's the disease talking. And it just crushes Olivia Coleman's character. And honestly, I've, I've not seen a film like this in a long time that I've been absolutely hooked into, thought was brilliantly filmed, paced really, really well exquisite acting like from everyone in this cast Rufus Saul plays Rufus Saul in this like, you, yeah, know, Ruf- you know the motives in it you're like you're up to no good if Rufus Saul is a 50-50 actor because he's either going to be the he's either going to be the best thing in it or he's going to be old yeah he's going to be old <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Mark Gaius appears for a couple of scenes and he has the scene at the end that's the big revolution where you're like oh fuck that's who that is mm. I, I just I, honest to god I, I'm not going to rush to watch it because it is crushing it's heartbreaking it's, yeah. it's when I've, I've watched it all and to be honest I'm trying to think of a situation where I'd want to watch it the problem was they did so well and that's genuinely one of my fears Oh yeah, having yeah. to deal with some damage or having it myself and I remember they were doing it in such a way I was like I can't watch this I, I wasn't Right. And when a film affects you on that level, it's doing its job. Yeah. So I'm just trying to think, I was like, because obviously you've got to put it in the vault, which means you've got to watch it, which means I don't want to watch it. <laughs> yeah. I, I would recommend watching it just purely because I, it, it is just a tour de force of acting in this. Mm. I, and it's, I think um, Florence Zeller, who just knows this inside out, wrote it, wrote the screenplay, wrote the the, the stage play. Um, just, it feels effortless. Like I said, going in six million budget, you got Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. Mm. And again, both of them in interviews are saying, because it's just that good a script. You think Anthony Hopkins also won an Oscar for Sansa Lambs when he was on screen for 11 minutes. And in this, he's in every scene. Like he had, you know, he dominates this film for an 82 year old as well in that yeah. role, um, which those roles are few and far between. It's just, I really enjoyed it. And I like films that have a bit of mystery, you know, and have some confusion and you have to just be held by the movie and guided by the movie and just trust that it's going to satisfy, you know, give it, give you an ending that's satisfactory and wrap it up. And this one does. And at the end you're like, all right. And it is crushing when you, when you see the end. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I thought it was just a brilliant film. Absolutely brilliant. The father is on Amazon. Um, and it, it, it's going to upset people. There's no doubt about it. The source yeah. material is one of those things that, you know, I think a lot of people have lived or experienced people with dementia. And so it is not pleasant, but uh, it's definitely worth a watch. And film is there to make you feel things. Mm. Not some of the, some of the best cinemas when you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. 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 Steven Seagal doesn't every film. <laughs> it takes me out because I want to see a good film. <laughs> so. And that episode's coming. Um, <laughs> I really don't want it to come. I'll do Under Siege and Under Siege 2. Yeah. That, that was his career, wasn't it? do you know what there's a guy I work with I'm not joking right this is a true story and this is a good one to end with his name's Marius and he is from I believe he's from Croatia I could be completely wrong anyway um, Steve Scar was out there filming a filming a film and he's an extra in it and we've seen it it's called The Shadow Man I believe and Marius is in it and he plays basically the guy who picks him up from the airport and carries his back so he's taller than Steven Seagal so Steven Seagal made him walk on his knees <laughs> <laughs> there you go that is brilliant and that's Steven Seagal at his pace because no one's watching that film I don't even I'm fairly certain I might have made the Shadow Man up I think it's called the Shadow Man yeah I think that's right he's on YouTube there you go brilliant um, that's our show next week we celebrate a landmark in this podcast and that is our 200th episode now technically we have done 200 episodes because we've done a few bonus episodes and spin-offs but they don't count unless Been, they're numbered they don't count yeah in terms of in terms of canon we're on episode 200 next week 
And what better way to celebrate for our 100th episode we did, Masters of the Universe, the, um, the 80s classic with Dolph Lundgren. Mm, good episode as well. Frank uh, Langella as Skeletor. This the time, once in a generation film. Exactly. This this time, we're going to address a running joke in this podcast. <laughs> because you'd think for a 200 episodes, you're going to do like something epic, something big, you know, a quest. You're on the quest to find the greatest movies of all time. You think we're going to do something brilliant. Oh no. <laughs> no. Oh no. Because no. that's not the way of this podcast. We are going to do Inner Space. Randy Quaid. Which is Randy Quaid, Martin Short. Because and I, Meg fucking right. Yes. It's a film that I thought I made up. <laughs> And I was talking about it in this podcast, and then you was like, "No, no, that film exists, and it's a, and it's called Inner Space." And we found that he's on Netflix. He's on no, it's on uh, Star, which is on Disney. Mm. So you need to get your Disney password back. I do. So we are going to do Inner Space now. If you haven't seen the movie, don't worry, we will do the work. <laughs> I'm going to go into so much fucking debt, and we're just going to have so much fun with it as well. And we'll do a couple of quizzes, games, and uh, just make it a bit of a laugh as well. So 200th episode next week. What better way to celebrate than Inner Space? And we're going to try and get scientists on to talk about yeah. how close we are to miniaturizing going, Dennis Quaid. Going back, going back to um, when we had, when we had the episode where we got tattooed on the show, mm. we had a doctor on this show once. <laughs> yep. And we just asked her questions like if she could amputate my leg. We asked her which cult she'd like to I join. Asked, yeah. We, yeah. We brought a doctor on to talk about cults. <laughs> And I asked her, I remember clearly asking in the first 10 minutes if she could take off my leg and sew it on my face. And I thought, there's the bar. Wasted that opportunity, didn't we? Yeah. No. She never came back. No. That's our show for this week, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't see you later, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Goodbye.